This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast. It is me, Jim Hill, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 5th, 2023. And when I say our, well, normally I do this podcast with one Lentesta, but he's off on a well-deserved break right now, exploring the great state of Maine with his lovely daughter, Hannah. Here's still hoping that Team Testa has a great time exploring uh, Maine's lush forests and rocky coastlines. Uh, more importantly, steers clear of Stephen King country. I mean, the last thing you want to do while driving through Maine is stop and ask directions in Castle Rock or, or worse, Salem's Lot. And don't even get me started on Derry. They have a serious clown down in the sewers problem in that community. And how does that even happen? I mean, I, I've heard about people flushing baby alligators down the commode, and then somehow these creatures become four and five foot long beasts. I mean, seriously, the New York Post had a piece about this just three weeks ago. Work crew in Oviedo, Florida, uh, they're trying to figure out why a certain street has so many potholes. So they send a robot down into a storm drain only to encounter a five foot long gator that's living down there in the sewer. And it's like, okay. You can flush a baby gator, but how exactly does that work with a clown? Wouldn't their giant shoes get get caught in that turn in the bowl? I, uh, I have so many questions. Anyway, before we get started here, I want to acknowledge our newest subscribers. These three folks actually signed up for this podcast within the last 24 hours. We have a, a Jeff Vaughton, uh, we have a Craig Kay, and we have a Michael Jacques, not to mention longtime subscribers to Tanya Alexander, uh, Stefan Klotschmeyer, and Craig Gomez, uh, who, by the way, signed up for the show back on September 2nd, 2016. These six are currently in training for a brand new division at the Reedy Creek Fire Department, one that Mouse House managers now feel very strongly about, and, and that's the Disney Dragon Fire Prevention Department. I mean, let's face it, folks, between that Maleficent as a dragon float that caught fire at the Magic Kingdom during a presentation of that theme park's Festival of Fantasy Parade back in May of 2018, and when Murphy the Dragon in Disneyland's nightly Phantasmic burst into flames back on April 23rd of this year, these enormous creatures have proven to be, well, real fire hazards, which is why uh, Reedy Creek now has assigned people to shadow a Maleficent Murphy 24-7. Uh, wait, am I reading this right? In the event that either of these dragons catch fires again, these people are supposed to quickly hand out individual packets of graham crackers, Hershey bars, and marshmallows. So going forward, that's the plan, Disney. S'mores. We live in very strange times, people. Okay, and speaking of the time, it's time now for the news portion of this week's Disney Dish. And as always, that is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. 
Okay, so what's happened over the past week? We were just talking about alligators, and given that, that Lewis is a featured character in Disney's Princess and the Frog, this story is kind of appropriate. And that's that the Disneyland version of Splash Mountain officially closed on Wednesday, May 31st. This was deliberately done in the middle of the week with the idea that it would help suppress uh, the size of the crowds that would, would come out and to say goodbye to this attraction. And that said, people still stood in nearly four-hour-long lines. The, the maximum reported wait time on the 31st, I want to say, was 220 minutes. You know, the upside is no one chained themselves to Chickapin Hill. It, it, you know, it seems to have been a relatively quiet goodbye. There was one video that did pop up on social media. I don't know if you folks saw this. A woman evidently had a panic attack after boarding a log on Disneyland Splash Mountain and then stepped out of said vehicle prior to the first drop down into the ride. And the footage then shows this young lady walking down the steps next to the flume traffic not entirely sure when the cast members were able to intercept and rescue her, but a friend of the show, Jim Shul, did make a pilgrimage to the park in the days before Disneyland's version of Splash Mountain closed. By the way, not the only Imagineer to do so. I did see images of Tom Morris, uh, likewise Tony Baxter, in the park on the day the Splash actually closed, which again, May 31st. Uh, in fact, I think there's one image of, of Tony quite proudly holding two smallish bottles filled with, with splash water, uh, hoping he's not selling those on eBay. Anyway, Mr. Shul, when he and I talked, had the same observation that I had when I rode Splash Mountain for the last time uh, back in March of this year, in, in that it looks like the park has deferred a lot of maintenance on this attraction over the past few months. There were a number of figures along the, the flume track that were no longer moving. Likewise, a, a number of spots where the show lighting wasn't what it should have been. Uh, it was no longer working as well as it once did. So long story short, Splash has definitely seen better days. On the other hand, when Mr. Shul was riding Splash, he did also notice that Disneyland is already hard at work getting this ride ready for its transformation into Tiana's Bayou Adventure. To be specific... On the side of Splash that faces out of the park, away from guests uh, backstage, a uh, lot of scaffolding already in place back there. More to the point, the day after Splash closed in Anaheim, uh, construction fences were already in place uh, in that part of the park, many of them trumpeting the new storyline that WDI has created for Tiana's Bayou Adventure. Which brings me to my other News of the Week topic, did you folks see all of the stories who bubbled, that bubbled up online this week from Disney influencers uh, that the company had treated to a multi-day uh, trip to New Orleans so that they could then explain all the research that Imagineering had done to make sure that Tiana's Bayou Adventure would be as authentic as humanly possible? Now, no disrespect to Charita Carter, the Imagineer who's riding herd on both of the uh, Tiano's Bayou Adventures, the one in Anaheim, the one in Orlando. I mean, I love the work that Charita and Kevin Rafferty did on Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. That is a really fun ride. And with Ms. Carter in charge of Tiano's Bayou Adventure, I'm sure that this reimagined version of Splash, when it opens next year, will be fun too. 
But that said, you still have to feel for Charita. I mean, the money that Disney just spent hosting a bunch of Disney influencers, taking them around uh, New Orleans with the idea that they would write stories that would then help sell the public on the idea that Tiana's Bayou Adventure is going to be as authentic as possible, do a great job of representing the people in the city of New Orleans. I mean, if I were Miss Carter, I think I would have liked to have had the money that was just spent on airfares and hotels and tickets to the Preservation Jazz, uh, Preservation Hall Jazz Club to then, oh, I don't know, maybe spent on something the guests would have actually enjoyed, like, an additional AA figure or a moving prop or a, a, a lighting effect. I mean, look, I, I get it. The PR team at the parks likes to think that they're doing their job too, uh, which is why, why they actually stage trips like this with the hope that Disney influencers will then go home and write all sorts of positive things about the new ride that the Imagineers have in the works for the park. And I have to be also be honest here. Over the past 40 years that I've been covering the Walt Disney Company, I've actually been on a bunch of these sorts of trips. I mean, I've been the one who's been wined and dined and then sent home with a gift bag. And so, honestly, no disrespect to those folks. I'm sure that... Well, they were all professionals and handled themselves well in New Orleans and did what they were supposed to, right? Again, stories. But let's cut to the chase here, though, okay? If you're someone who's planning a trip for your family to Walt Disney World or Disneyland in 2025, and you're trying to make up your mind if that trip is actually going to be worth the hassle and the expense, what's going to seal the deal for you here? Having a friend, family member, you know, or someone you trust say, oh, you have to experience Tiana's Bayou Adventure. It's so authentic. The flume rhyme really does do a great job of recreating a visit to the real city of New Orleans. Or is it going to be having that same person say, you really need to go on that ride? It's fun. I mean, I mean don't get me wrong. I'm all for things being authentic. And the Disney parks have been celebrated for decades for their insane level of detail. But sometimes I think the people who work in themed entertainment lose sight of the fact that the most important word in that phrase is entertainment. And, and since we're largely talking about Disneyland right now, let's just shift for a moment for to a, another recent ride redo that... Me personally, I think the Imagineers did quite well, and that's Snow White's Enchanted Wish, which opened back on May 30th, 2021, as a replacement for Snow White's Scary Adventure. Now, this dark ride, which back when Disneyland first opened in July of 1955, was originally known as Snow White and Her Adventures, but back when Fantasyland was redone at this theme park in the early 1980s, the thinking among the Imagineers was, this Disneyland ride is scaring too many little kids. They don't realize until they're already on board their ride vehicle with the lap bar pulled down and they're rolling into this, this attraction's first show scene that this dark ride is scary. So that's why Snow White and her adventures got its name changed to Snow White's Scary Adventures. That's also why the Imagineers had the evil queen glaring down at guests over the entrance of, of this attraction's 
again, when, when the new version was, was put in place in 83. This is also why people who want to experience Snow White's Scary Adventure are initially forced, right after they entered the queue, to walk by the Evil Queen's dungeon, where there was at least one skeleton of, of a poor dead prisoner in plain sight. And I've talked with the Imaginers who worked on this thing, and, and their thinking was, if your kid can't even handle the queue for Snow White Scary's adventure, which again sets up the story for the ride, well, it's better that you find out now rather than later. It's easier at this point to make it to the chicken exit rather than deal with your kid being completely terrified as they encounter the seven different witches in this attraction, and by the way, this is an interesting side note. That's one of the more intriguing things about Snow White's Scary Adventure, at least the, the version from 83. The cute, cuddly characters, the dwarves, you don't see them all that often. Whereas the witch shows up, well, in, in the ride's original form, it's seven times. We now jump ahead to the early 2020s, and Kim Irvine and her team at Disneyland They've seen the decades worth of reports, you know, that came out of guest relations where, you know, people marched down to City Hall and they then complained about how Snow White's Scary Adventure really scared my kid, which explains the whole point of, of doing the Snow White Enchanted Wish redo. Let's, let's put, give the dwarves a bigger position in the, the, this ride. And, and more to the point, let's bring in more actual media from the original 1937 Disney film that this attraction is based on. And so, you know, Kim and the team, they, they did things like they changed the color palette of the exterior of the building. They took that dungeon section of the queue and made that a lighter story-driven moment in the, the attraction. And, and mind you, no one that I've talked with about this attraction <laughs> went on and on about how Snow White's enchanted wish had to be authentic. You know, the, the, nobody made a re research trip to Germany to get pictures of the, you know, real trees in the Black Forest. So the gnarled trees that you encounter in the ride are, you know, oh, the, the, the detail is amazing. Uh, look, this was more about creating a fun time for little kids and while also honoring the Disney film that served as the inspiration for Snow White's Enchanted Wish. And, and by that measurement, this Disneyland redo really delivered the goods. I mean, look, I get it. Snow White's Enchanted Wish is a C ticket. And Tiana's Bayou Adventure is a redo of an E ticket. And, and so going into this, there are different expectations being set. A lot of what we're dealing with here is that Splash Mountain as a thrill ride, was beloved. But at the same time, the source material that was used to create Splash is controversial, at the very least in today's world. I think that Disney, because it's so worried that people are going to use their fond memories of having ridden Splash as a kid or with their parents or whatever, are going to use that nostalgia as an excuse to bash Tiana's Bayou Adventure, no matter what. So I think what Disney's trying to do here as a counter move is to stress how authentic this Splash Mountain redo is. 
I mean, it'll be nice if the radio broadcasted guests here as they walk through the queue for Tiana's Bayou Adventure sounds just like a real radio broadcast did back in the 1920s. Likewise, again, it's got to be a nice touch if the labels on the canned goods that people walk by as they make their way to the Flume's load station look just like canned goods did back in the 1920s. But you know what's equally important here? That the ride itself be fun. That's why we stand in these hour-long lines. Speaking of which, did any of you see where Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind did a standby line for the first time this past weekend? If there's a Disney Dish listener who took part in that, you know, experienced that standby line, uh, Len and I would love to hear about it. So feel free to reach out. Back to the point, if there was a point here. Life is all about balance, all right? And it's okay for a theme park attraction to be authentic, but they should also be fun. I mean, look, again, I'm all for research. That's how I make my living, people. Digging down deep and pulling up long, pointless stories that I hope eventually will be entertaining. Speaking of long, pointless stories, we're coming up to the second half of the show now, folks, where we're going to continue the story of the pool area at the Disneyland Hotel. Hey there, just a quick reminder that Father's Day 2023 is coming up fast, on Sunday, June 18th to be exact. And if you're looking for a gift for Dad that he won't want to return, well how about this? What if you could put all of your family photos, including those random camera roll pics, in a place where your dad could actually see them? If that sounds like the perfect Father's Day gift, then why not consider getting him a Wi-Fi connected digital frame from Aura? Named the number one best digital picture frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired, Aura frames are guaranteed to make Dad, or in my case, the granduncle, smile every single day. FYI, my nephew Jonathan and his wife Sarah adopted a beautiful little boy just last month, and Nancy and I have been using our Aura frame here at the house to keep tabs on Emmanuel, or as I like to call him, Manny. Manny's almost seven weeks old now and weighs a whopping 10 pounds. Very cute kid, very photogenic. And Nancy and I have been able to watch our new grandnephew grow thanks to our Aura frame, which was so easy to set up, by the way. Only took about two minutes using the Aura app. And if you're one of those gift givers who doesn't like dealing with wrapping paper, did I mention that each Aura frame comes packaged in a premium gift box with no price tag attached? So if you're looking to stay connected with friends and family who live far away, just like looking at pictures of your new grandnephew who lives a couple of towns over, go check out Aura Frames. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Father's Day. Listeners can save by visiting AuraFrames.com slash Disney Dish. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com slash Disney Dish. Use code Disney Dish to save $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frames. Just so you know, though, this deal ends on June 18th. So don't wait. And terms and conditions apply. Again, that's Aura Frames, the perfect gift for your not-so-tech-savvy family members like me. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Okay, not to be a bummer here, but did I mention I lost my dad a while back? This would have been back in December of 2020, so what was that, two and a half years ago now? And no, it wasn't due to COVID. My dad was dealing with some other serious health challenges at the time. And I mean, COVID certainly didn't help, especially when it came to getting to the hospital to see him during those last few weeks. <sighs> anyway, 
I miss my dad. There isn't a day that goes by when something he said or something he did for me. I take, for example, the 5,000 plus books and magazines that I have in my reference library. The stuff that I use for research all the time when I'm writing those stories that I share with Lynn over in Disney Dish. The bookshelves that I store all that material in. My dad and I built those together. Anyway, I miss my dad. But thanks to the stories that he shared with StoryWorth, my dad really isn't gone. StoryWorth, for those of you who don't know, is this online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years yet to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you with those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth will email your loved one a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of options. There are questions you may have never had the chance to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done with your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your loved one's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations yet to come. I signed my data for StoryWorth a couple of years before we lost him, and like the good Marine that he was, Dad responded to all those story prompts. There's some especially funny tales that he shared about his time at Cherry Point, including one where his Marine drill instructor made Dad's entire squad give a full military funeral to a sand flea. I've got that book full of my dad's stories here at the house. StoryWorth did a really great job with this keepsake. They included some pictures from his time in the Corps, likewise some photos from when Mom and Dad were first married. God, how young they look. I mean, I want to say I got StoryWorth for Dad as a Father's Day gift a few years back, but who knew eventually I'd be the one who'd really wind up treasuring this book. If you're looking to give all of the dads in your life a unique, meaningful gift that you'll all cherish for years yet to come, I'd seriously consider StoryWorth if I were you. And right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 on your first purchase when you go to StoryWorth.com slash Disney Dish. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash Disney Dish to save $10 on your first purchase. One more time, for those of you in the backyard slaving over a hot grill, StoryWorth.com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. You know the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm a big fan of that behavior, by the way. Except when it comes to those moments in our lives where, well, you're just so busy attending to the wants and needs of other people in your life that you begin to neglect your own wants and needs. And let's be honest here, folks. If you're physically exhausted, emotionally spent, stretched thin, well, what good are you then to your friends and family? Burnout is a very real thing, people. But some of us, myself included, don't really like to recognize or even acknowledge that, largely because of the way we were brought up. This is why I'm such a big advocate of therapy these days. Talking with someone who could then help you gain some outside perspective on what's really going on in your life, that can be so, so helpful. And if you're thinking about starting therapy, well, why not give BetterHelp a try? BetterHelp is entirely online and is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Look, life is all about balance, and back in the 1990s, I seriously lost track of that and let things get all out of whack. 
therapy helped me right the ship, so to speak, get that work-personal life balance in place that we all need in order to have a happy, productive life. You, too, can find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DisneyDish today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash DisneyDish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Uh, before we get started here, continuing last week's story, I want to acknowledge that a few Disneyland Hotel fans reached out about the last episode of Disney Dish. They wanted to clarify a few things about the history of this resort. Mainly, while the original tower building with its 150 rooms did open September of 62, important to acknowledge that this part of the Disneyland Hotel was just ex- was expanded just four years later. Plans to do so were announced in 1965 as part of uh, Disneyland's 10-cennial celebration. That's the the cute way they described Disneyland's 10th anniversary back in the day. With the annex, which was uh, expanded uh, the Sierra Tower to the north, uh, added an additional 160 rooms to the place. And those came online summer of 66. Okay, so anyway, and on the heels of that, we saw the Disneyland Hotel open its its very own shopping plaza in November of 66. By the mid-1960s, it's a boom time for this hotel that Jack Rather has built just across the street from Walt's Family Fun Park. But then, December of 1966, Walt Disney dies. And for a year or so after that sad event, rumors swirled that far larger corporations, uh, for example, RCA, were considering swallowing Walt Disney Productions. And given that Jack Rather wasn't entirely sure who he'd be dealing with as the new owner of the Mouse House, well, this is why Jack tapped the brakes uh, on any further expansion of the Disneyland Hotel for a year or two. But as 1967 gave way to 1968, Walt's brother, Roy O. Disney, effectively came out of mourning. Though, my question has always been, what was Roy O. mourning? I mean, obviously, you know, the the passing of his brother. But in the summer of 66, Roy supposedly went to Walt and basically said, look, I'd like to retire. I've been CEO of the company since 29. You know, and Edna and I aren't getting any younger, and I'd, I'd love to take my wife on a around-the-world cruise. So can we talk about, you know, a search for an exit, you know, look at the, the executive we have or look outside of the company, but we can get somebody to replace me. And Walt okayed that idea, but then in that fall, you know, went over to St. Joe's uh, for what everybody thought was a polo injury. And then that's when they discovered the large nodules on his lungs. And the tough part of the story is they didn't tell Walt. They told Lillian and they told Roy, you know, and they basically told those two that he's got a year and a half, two years. And he was gone in six weeks. So I think Roy got, you know, was headed down an entirely different path. He was, he was looking literally to sail off into the sunset with Edna. And then suddenly uh, he saddled with this company that his, his brother has set up and the, the number of films that are in production and Lord knows everything that's going on in Florida. And 
so there is no World Cruz in his future. Anyway, uh, by early 1968, Royo's back on the job. Uh, Walt's brother is telling Wall Street that in no uncertain terms is Walt Disney Productions for sale. And more to the point that the company it will be proceeding with its then $100 million investment in Project Florida. And so Jack Rather, hearing this, breathes a huge sigh of release and then begins to proceed with his plans to expand the Disneyland Hotel. Which is why July of 1968, ground is broken on not just another 11-story tower to complement what eventually becomes known as the Sierra Tower, which, which again adds a, another 350 rooms to the hotel, but also a 3.5-acre marina area, which in press materials that Rather's office released around the same time described this construction project as, well, first involving the removal of 55,000 square feet of earth. So it would then create the, a space, you know, where, and again, I, I, I love this description. Guests could inspect boats from five to 50 feet long. You know, this is that, that world of water area that I was describing on last week's show. And further, this unusual water play area would also feature a wharf area, a scuba diving tank, a tropical-style swimming pool, a fishing pond, and a seashore-themed restaurant, which would all be connected by a network of docks. And, by the way, there is method to Jack Rather's madness. Now, remember, we talked on last week's show how about Disneyland the Park was closed on Mondays and Tuesdays during the off-season, which, back then was roughly seven and a half months out of the year. And what Jack Rather's own research showed that was on days when Disneyland was closed were a lot of people who were staying in his hotel, especially in the spring and early fall when the weather was still warm in Southern California. Well, they'd head off to the beach for the day. So by making the centermost portion of the Disneyland Hotel as beach-like as possible, what Jack was hoping to do here was eliminate his guests' need to actually drive out to Laguna or Malibu. Now, phase one of this project, which was flanked on one side by the Sierra Tower and the other side, the soon-to-open Marina Tower, was supposed to come online November of 68. Sadly, rather in company, they missed that target date. But by June 15th of the following year, this ambitious expansion of the Disneyland Hotel is now officially open for business. And with the opening of the Marina Tower, the Disneyland Hotel now shifts its entrance from West Street to the northern side of, of, of what Rather's PR team is, is trying to sell at the time. And Jack still thinks of himself in competition with Vegas. So the, the catchphrase that his PR team is trying to get out there is that the Disneyland Hotel is the world's most exciting hotel I got me a lot wrong. I, I like this hotel, but if you put a, a list of, of potential ways to describe this hotel in front of me, the, the world's most exciting hotel would, would, would not be it. Anyway, uh, with an eye toward corporate executives, though, that you, you have your annual sales meetings, you have your conventions, and there's still folks in the, in the 60s heading into the 70s a little squeamish about Sin City. So the whole notion is, why not have your convention here? So, November 1972, Jack spends $7.8 million and builds a 350,000-square-foot convention center, which is right off of Disneyland's brand-new entrance and, and lobby area, which, again, is located in the Marina Tower. 
the fact that this construction and this expansion at the Disneyland Hotel happens in 1972, not a coincidence. Disney World had, of course, opened the previous year, October 1971 to be exact. And Jack, rather, now, as opposed to Vegas, now looks to the contemporary and the Polynesian in Florida as his competition. You know, it's like those new hotels in Florida, Disney hotels, they're going to be front of mind with would-be vacationers and, and conventioneers. Even though that's on the East Coast, I here on the West Coast need to do something about that. Also important to understand that those first two years, as Walt Disney production began operating those hotels in Florida, and again, important to remember here, that was not the plan. Disney was going to operate the theme parks. U.S. Steel was going to build and then operate the hotels on property. It was only... October of 1970, when U.S. Steel went to Disney and said, oh, by the way, uh, yes, I know we said we'd have these hotels open by the fall of 1971. That's not going to happen. Is that going to be a problem? And Rio Disney nodded and smiled and then turned to Dick Nunes and said, we're going to fire U.S. Steel and take over those hotels, find people who can run them. It's in this period, 72, 73, thereabouts, that Disney is actually learning how much money you can make from operating a hotel that's very close to a Disney theme park. And so around the same time, word comes down, can, uh, look over that deal that Walt made with Jack Rather. Is there anything, any wiggle room, anything we can finesse here? So they, they pull the, the, it's a relatively short document from 1955. And the Disney attorneys are appalled. Oh, you know, Walt basically gave away the farm. Walt gave Jack Rather the rights to the Disneyland hotel name for 100 years. Walt also gave Jack, if he so chose, the right to build not just one, but a number of hotels around California all of which could be named the Disneyland Hotel. Disney would have loved to have had a hotel of their own in Anaheim, but how to compete with the Disneyland Hotel, which had a monorail that took guests right to the, from the front door of that hotel into the middle of Tomorrowland, and to further make this difficult, around the same time, Jack Rather acquires the Inn at the Park you know, it was literally at the corner of Harbor and Catella at the edge of the Disneyland parking lot. And for a time, Jack was campaigning to the effect of, well, you know, how much would it cost to extend the monorail to the end at the park? Because I would love for guests who were staying at my other hotel to have the same perk that people are staying at the Disneyland Hotel. And, and nobody at Disney is telling Jack to the effect of, well, we'd like to have guests stay at our own hotel, you know, but okay. Disney's lawyers trying to find a workaround for the deal that, that Walt cut with Jack. But in the meantime, the Disneyland Hotel expands yet again in the late 1970s. Rather Corporation gets permission from uh, Anaheim to build a third tower. This one is 13 stories tall, which for a time, tallest building in Orange County. They get permission in 1976. This building, which would eventually be named after Jack's bride, Bonita, was considered kind of groundbreaking back in the late 70s, early 80s, given that it had solar panels installed in its roof that were, were then used to heat 
all of the water that guests used inside of this Disneyland hotel. Now, mind you, guests couldn't actually get up to the roof to see any of this cutting-edge stuff. But a hotel, by the way, uh, this, this just this wing of the hotel cost $18 million on its own. And it opens July 1st, 1978. But what they could explore was the elaborate outdoor entertainment complex that the Rathers had built at the base of the Bonita Tower. This four-acre area, which was initially called the Aqua Garden, cost $2 million to build all on its own. Uh, featured a 165-foot-wide crescent-shaped horseshoe falls, as well as the Japanese grotto, which was home to over 400 koi fish. And let's not forget that this part of the Disneyland Hotel was also home to the Fantasy Water Show, which was this 20-minute-long laser light show featuring Disney music that was presented twice nightly. Uh, by the way, you, you got the whole mention of the Japanese grotto with the koi fish, right? Okay. Now, remember, this work is being done at the Disneyland Hotel, late 1970s, early 1980s, just about the same time that Walt Disney Productions is promoting its massive project in Florida at the Epcot Center, which will be made up of two key components, Future World and World Showcase. Now, again, what's always fascinating is is getting inside of Jack Rather's head because now Jack's sort of mutated away from the whole I'm competing with Vegas to I'm competing with Florida. And his thinking is that Disney fans have a choice. They can vacation on the East Coast or the West Coast. And if Jack has his way, he'd really prefer that the Disney fans on the West Coast would stay on the West Coast. So with an idea toward making the Disneyland Hotel that much more appealing to future world fans, what he decides to do is install at his hotel the world's first video arcade. I have a problem with this story. Video Adventures, which, look, I won't lie to you, very cool. Built in the middle of the marina area, featured the hottest video games that the rather folks could get their hands on. And it had a, a really kind of cool setup. You had to go out into the dock area and you had to go downstairs. You know, it was, it was underground. By being underground, it was also underwater because you're out in the marina area. But here's the thing. It doesn't actually open till December of 1982 and... That's a little late in the game to be claiming that you're the world's first video arcade. On the other hand, Epcot Center also had an internationally themed section, which of course is called World Showcase. And to make sure that the Disneyland Hotel had something that could be seen as the West Coast answer to that, well, this is why Jack Rather had his hotel's World of Water area transformed into the Seaports of the Pacific, which, again, recall that, that Japanese grotto full of koi fish. What's interesting about this redo, which, which, by the way, was done in the summer of 88, just in time for Disneyland's 25th anniversary, is it takes the centermost part of the Disneyland Hotel and transforms it into an environment associated with the exotic ports of trade in the Pacific Basin. Uh, so at this point, there are now 35 little shops and boutiques all facing into the pools, uh, you know, hotels, pool area, not to mention strolling magicians and mimes. And I, that to me, I mean, that screams 1980s Epcot. Since we are now talking about the Walt Disney Company in the early 1980s, let's remember that 
After Epcot Center opened in October of 1982 and then didn't meet its initial attendance projections, that's when green mailers like Saul Steinberg and Erwin Jacobs began circling the company. Looking to acquire Disney and then sell off various divisions of the company, like its film library or the theme parks, off to the highest bidder. I mean, literally breaking Disney up in, into parts. And one way that the company could make Disney less desirable to green mailers was if the mouse house suddenly took on a huge amount of debt. This brings us to chairman, then chairman of the board, Ray Watson, who has a brainstorm. The company has been looking at the amount of money that Jack Rather has been making off of the Disneyland Hotel. They've also looked at the terms of the deal that Walt made with Jack back in 55. And at the same time, they've also been watching Mr. Rather invest millions upon millions of dollars into improving the 60-acre property right across the street from the happiest place on earth. And the understanding is in the Disney boardroom, there is just no way that Jack Rather is ever going to sell the Disneyland Hotel to the company unless it's an absolutely crazy offer, a, a, a completely over-the-top bid so outlandishly big that he would have to take it. And the beauty part of, about doing this at this particular time with the green mailers circling is that Disney could make such a bid and Wall Street would see this as being in the company's best interest because A, Disney would finally have ownership of the Disneyland Hotel and the price that the company would have had to pay Jack Rather in order to get him to agree to this deal would be so enormous. It would saddle Disney with so much debt that no sane green mailer would ever continue to pursue acquiring Walt Disney Productions. Which is why on June 6th, 1984, Ray Watson meets with Jack Rather. This is four months before Michael Eisner becomes the new CEO of Walt Disney Productions. That wouldn't happen until September 30th of the same year. So Ray sits down with Jack Rather and explains the situation, that, that Disney is now fighting for its life against people like Saul Steinberg and Erwin Jacobs. And the only way to protect the Mouse House right now is if, if Jack agrees to sell the Disneyland Hotel back to Walt Disney Productions. And in a weird sort of way... Ray Watson's offer could not have come at a better time. It's not known to a lot of folks in, in the industry at this time, but at this time, Jack Rather has been battling cancer for almost three years. And to be blunt, it's not going well. Jack has actually reached the time where his doctors have run out of treatment options and, and Rather has basically been told, you know, it's time to put your affairs in order. But now, think about it. There's a chance to deliver to his family one last, truly crazy, enormous windfall. An amount of money that, that could be seen from space. Not only that, but selling the Disneyland Hotel back to the mouse in this way. At this time, he's actually helping to save Walt Disney Productions, which 
When you consider that Jack Rather produced the TV versions of Lassie and the Lone Ranger, that Jack was now going to get to be the hero? The cavalry coming over the hill to rescue Disney from the Green Mailers? That's a hell of a way to go out. So Rather agrees in principle to Ray Watson's offer. It's now up to Disney's lawyers and the attorneys who work for the Rather Corporation to sort everything out. But, but here's the thing about people who work for billable hours. They don't work quickly or, or in this case, not quickly enough. Because Jack Rather died on November 12, 1984, before the papers could be signed that would, would then allow Walt Disney Productions to acquire the Disneyland Hotel. The deal didn't happen. Not for another four years yet. Tell you what, uh, we will wrap up the this Disneyland hotel-related story, which, by the way, will eventually circle back to the pool area and how it got reimagined yet again uh, with fun new places like Trader Sam's Enchanted Tiki Bar in May of 2011 with next, next week's show. Which will also feature Mr. Testa, I promise. I miss him too. And not just because Len and Hannah promised to swing by the L.L. Bean store in Kittery, Maine and pick me up a new Bug Baffler shirt. I, I really need a new one of those because my old Bug Baffler is no longer working. The bugs, at best, are bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, but, but they're not baffled anymore. Okay, since there are maybe five musical theater fans out there who actually got that joke, I'm just going to shut up now. Oh, 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 one last thing. This coming weekend, I'm going to be at Dayton Disneyana, which is this terrific fundraiser for Pirate Packs, uh, which is this amazing organization that helps at-risk kids in the West Carlton School District. I'm, I'm going to be giving two talks over the event. What about Star Wars-related stuff about uh, that, that happens at the Disney parks? Gee, I wonder if the Galactic Star Cruiser is going to come up. And then another talk about the Main Street Opera House at, at Disneyland and all the stuff that, that went in there and, and almost went in there. I'm looking at you, Muppet Vision 3D. I'll also get to interview uh, veteran Imagineers Peggy Ferris and Ellie Erlidson. Okay. Dayton Disneyana is being staged at the Hope Hotel and Richard C. Holbrook Conference Center in Dayton, Ohio, from June 9th through the 11th, and I hope to see some of you folks there. Uh, someone I don't expect to see there is Aaron Adams, the fabulous producer of this podcast, also my co-host on the Marvelous Disney Show. Mr. Adams is already booked for this coming weekend. He is due to be up in Maine as well, peddling his Schwinn from Sunday River to Belfast as part of the 2023 edition of Trek Across Maine, which is a 180-mile cycling event, which is held annually to benefit the American Lung Association. So while Aaron's doing that, uh, could you please head over to iTunes and rate uh, our show and then tell us, uh, me and Len, what you'd like to hear next. And anyway, for Mr. Tester, this is Mr. Hill, and we hope to see you on our next show.